Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Welcome, and thank you very much for joining us today. I just spoke with Orit Halpern about her new book, Beautiful Data, A History of Vision and Reason Since 1945. This came out with Duke University Press in 2014. And this is a book I was really excited to talk with Orit about, and I'm really excited to share with you. Now, I was particularly excited about this because I've, over the past several years, gone to talks and lectures that Orit's given several times, and I always have come away, without exception, with a reading list and a visual list and a film list of all kinds of materials and objects and ways of thinking and material manifestations thereof that I had no idea existed and that I couldn't have imagined putting into dialogue before she really beautifully put them into dialogue to make um, one of several kinds of arguments. So one of the reasons I'm so excited about this book then is that's exactly um, what happens in the book. What it's doing is it's looking at the second half of the 20th century and specifically investigating how ideas of vision and cognition were produced, were co-produced in a range of different fields, um, including social and human sciences, the arts, by designers, by urban planners, by animators. Um, And in doing so, she's really, I think, transforming how we think about communication, governmentality, how we think about our moment right now and how we might imagine what comes next in terms of media, in terms of the world that we live in, in terms of aesthetics, in terms of many, many other things. So the book places this history of aesthetics and design and planning into dialogue with a history of knowledge, communication, and science. So what it does is to trace a relationship between cybernetics, vision, knowledge, and power that kind of culminates at the end in contemporary, so right now, concerns with biopolitics. It maps out early cybernetic ideas at MIT in the late 1940s, looking at the work of people there like Norbert Wiener, who were working on vision and perception and representation, and then traces the influence of those ideas on designers and urban planners and others in the U.S. who were reformulating not just practice, but also education and training in the 1950s. It then turns to look at the impact of cybernetic on the social and human sciences and pays special attention to the realms where cognition emerges as um, some kind of object. So that is in psychology, in neuroscience, political science, and organizational management. Now, the book, in looking at all these phenomena, is also, I think, really helpfully and really productively helping us rethink what history can look like and what it might look like, what it should look like, and how creating these kinds of conversations might transform really how we think about um, how to do disciplinary and transdisciplinary work. 
So it was a huge pleasure to read the book, and it really, really was a pleasure to talk with or read about it as well. So I hope that you have a chance to take a look at it. It's a beautiful object as well as being a book about beautiful data. Um, Just the images and the way the layout is structured with regard to the interplay between image and text is very, very thoughtfully done. So I hope you enjoy, and thank you very much for listening. I'm here today to talk with Orit Halpern about her new book, Beautiful Data. Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Orit, thanks for, first of all, writing an amazing and thoughtful and I think really boundary traversing and crossing and exploding book, and also for making time to talk with me today. Well, thank you, Carla, for inviting me. Of course. So My pleasure. Orit, could you start us off, as is kind of traditional for the channel, by just saying a little bit about what brought you to the field, and specifically, how did you come to work on the history of science? Well, it's a long and circuitous uh, (laughs) story, Um, but uh, essentially, I originally was trained in um, epidemiology and um, anthropology and public health. Um, I have a master's in public health and I was working uh, mostly in international development and I started to have a lot of questions about the work I was doing and also about the way numbers represent the world. Um, And as part of my work there, I actually then got hired. It was the start of Internet. Internet One, if you can imagine it, many of your um, (laughs) viewers and listeners probably cannot even imagine what it would be like to work on the Internet in the late 90s. But... um, I very quickly entered projects on te- what we like to call technology transfer um, to the global south, or um, and this just led to a whole lot of questions about how we were conducting in, uh, development, the impact of technology on society, and particularly, you know, I was really interested in this question of quantification and the narratives it tells, and how and what are the limits or possibilities, really of uh, these forms of uh, quantified rationality and how we describe the world. And so this sort of, I got very critical of my work, and so I kind of got interested in science technology studies and um, history of science through that, Uh, but particularly because I had spent so much time working on on computers and on the Internet as pertaining to uh, reproductive health and rights, I increasingly was drawn to trying to understand this medium that at the time was quite new, um, now perhaps not, Uh, And of course, everything new is old, but I was really interested in trying to think more about the impact of computing on on society. So that's what brought me to History of Science and to here. Awesome. So the book that we are talking about today explores, as you, I think, put it early on in the book, the historical construction of vision and cognition in the second half of the 20th century. And it looks specifically at how cybernetics and computer or communication sciences, rather, after World War II, impacted a range of fields. So the social and human sciences, design, the arts, and urban planning. And and that's actually one of the exciting things, one of many, I think, exciting things about the book that we'll talk about um, later on is the the way that the book brings all of these together into the same conversation. So can you talk a little bit about how you came to focus on this particular topic? What brought you to focus on this as a topic to motivate a book-length object? Well, one of the big things, as somebody who kind of was started their career at the moment when there was a lot of excitement about digital media and about the internet and it's sort of seen the kind of transformations about what how we think about 
what the internet is or what digital media is. Because I, first I really started to want to be thinking about computing and digital media away from the object of the machine itself. Um, that, you know, there seemed to be something else going on about media that was about the way we know the world, epistemology, and the way we respond or react and represent the world. And so Essentially, I wanted to find new frameworks by which we can begin to describe the phenomena of what it is to live in a digital age in our present uh, that is not technologically determined and isn't necessarily bound to kind of a one particular technology, but rather examines, if you will, a kind of um, gestalt, a social gestalt that links together a number of different locations into producing, I think, the environments that today we're very familiar with. I also want to emphasize that in the course of the time I was working, there's a big difference between my dissertation and my book, um, the nature of our devices and how we were engaging with uh, digital media radically changed and went from being very much centered on the computer as a singular von Neumann kind of architecture machine to being these ubiquitous handheld de- devices. And there's kind of a real transformation there in terms of the infrastructure as well of the Internet and this movement um, away from a kind of software hardware approach to clouds, um, analytics, big data. And so as you're dealing with that transformation, you're trying to also try to understand what kind of new sites, metaphors, locations might explain this more ubiquitous, if we will, um, penetration of computing into life through a kind of array of different devices and modes of use. So that's also part of this. Right. So it sounds like there was a pretty dramatic transformation then from Um, how you were thinking in terms of the dissertation and what the book ultimately looked like. Yeah, there was. Um, I think when I started with the dissertation, it was a much earlier period where people were really just trying to develop a more sophisticated language and model for thinking about uh, digital computing. And this particularly was sparked by the Internet And a lot of people were really focusing at the time on a very limited definition, I think, of communication sciences and cybernetics. So people were very, very much involved still in spaces that we would identify as, quote unquote, scientific or engineering. Um, People were very much involved with built technologies, realized technologies, um, and very much kind of concentrated, if you will, around particular sites that were kind of clearly identified as locations where high technology gets developed. I think one of the things that's changed has started to be an incredible expansion uh, in engagement with art history, with architecture, with design, with many other fields, to attempting to understand the history of computing is not merely um, the history of a particular type of machine, but rather more broadly as um, a broader history of histories of representation, histories of population. I mean, one of the things about clouds is that it's not about 
um, logic, it's, it's actually a history of the human sciences that in many ways would more adequately maybe help us think about what's going on today with analytics and surveillance and other questions than a history per se of a kind of engineering of a particular technology. So I think there's been a kind of massive expansion around where people are citing and thinking the history of computing. And um, obviously my book kind of reflects that change away from kind of cybernetics as understood as a very closed world, uh, you know, epistemology practiced by a few people who are deeply concerned with either Cold War policy or um, high technology weaponry and development to kind of a much broader discourse that gets invoked in a, in a, in a huge number of fields to reorganize practices. Mm-hmm. Now you're mentioning clouds um, in, in one sense, but I think in another sense, it's actually the figure of a cloud and how a cloud works and, and what a cloud does is really central to what the book is doing in a way that may be implicit or may not be obvious um, right off the bat, but I think is one of the really profound contributions that it's making. And that is in reconsidering what history is. So you're mentioning that the book is a history, and of course this is part of a history of science, but it doesn't just take history for granted as looking a particular way. You mentioned early in the book that you're considering history here as a matter of densities and probabilities. So this is where I'm kind of coming from um, in relating Mm -hmm. this to clouds. And this is really a, a very different way of encouraging us to think about Uh, or at least different from what we might take for granted, think about what history is, how history works, what it might look like to craft a history, to read with that in mind, and what that might do to our notions of temporality. Um, (laughs) No, excellent, excellent question. So thank you. Um, Yeah, very central to my project. And I think in general, it's a broader question for the digital humanities and for history in particular, is sort of, you know, if we take seriously that the modes of that what we study should impact how we tell our stories, then in some sense we have to take really seriously all these questions of feedback and interactivity. We have to take really seriously uh, the probabilistic infrastructure of our technology, and more importantly, I think if we're really, really dedicated to uh, creating a a political and some sense ethical intervention into the way technologies are designed and produced today, we have to be really attempting to understand history, not as a kind of linear and deterministic thing that like the war machine had to produce the world we live in today with, um, you know, post 9-11 terror and ISIS and, and, and NSA, but rather we have to make that a matter of, uh, of probabilities that perhaps there were less likely chances that something else could have happened, but rather, but it could have happened. And so for me, one of the big elements of this, of this book is to put together a whole series to cloud together, if you will, group together a series of practices that demonstrate in many ways also alternative imaginaries people had around what the future of uh, digital media would be. They didn't call it that, but in many ways, the way they took up ideas of communication and cybernetics in radically different ways and often in radical competition with one another. And similarly, I'm really interested in um, attempting to read history not only as a sort of clearly understood 
thing, but rather as a sort of um, complex field of forces where actually my interest is not in making history easier to understand, but actually harder to understand. Mm -hmm. I think the number one question that we should have should never be like, what? Like, of course this happened. I can give you a reason. Instead, we should constantly be thinking about the world as incredibly strange and bizarre. Like, what right. kind of society, you know, seriously, right. like, honestly, what, what kind of society just everybody just needs to check their, you know, some, some little box in their pocket every three seconds. Like, you know, this should be just bizarre. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and, and in some sense, I feel that has to happen. But also, again, I feel that if we're really part of the, Part of the challenge of digital humanities and increasingly as they enter history is not just, you know, telling stories about things that are digital, but actually asking how the very nature of attempting to account for this phenomenon should be transforming how we actually narrate and and tell our histories. And that for me is very much about having to engage with the fact that, um, these are these communication machines are probabilistic, and there is a lot about we can never tell what our networks are going to do, and we and in order to think about that, I'm really interested in thinking about density and probability and what it means to tell nonlinear histories. What does it mean to take feedback seriously if you're a historian? I mean, does that allow you to say this happened in 1945 and it led directly in some straight line to you know 2015? Mm-hmm. Probably not. Like we should be taking those things seriously. That's right. I and mean, we don't have to kind of talk too much about this, um, but it also really kind of changes, I think, where we're looking to see evidence of causality, right? And mm-hmm. sort of what that looks like and, and where that is and how that is. Absolutely. Um, and of course, for me, a lot of it is, uh, you know, shifting the question from, you know, only describing why something happened to what work does it do and um, how does it happen. So, Mm -hmm. you know, what are the actual material practices and ideas and concepts that have to to be maintained in order to allow people to make particular, in this case, you know, uh, particular design decisions, particular decisions about how to build a financial system, this sort of decisions. That's right. And so let's, um, let's kind of get to that. Let's get into the, um, the meat of the book. So the book, and one of the uh, really, I think, important innovations of the book, as I think we've mentioned a little bit before, the book places a history of design, of planning, of aesthetics alongside and uses that history to think with a history of knowledge, communication, and science. Now, it proposes, as you put it early in the book, a radical shift in attitudes to recording and displaying information that produced new forms of observation, of rationality, and of economy that were based on management and analysis of data. Now, I mentioned this right at the um, top here because you call this communicative objectivity. So I think it's probably good for us to maybe start there. Um, Can you talk a little bit for listeners about this idea of communicative objectivity? What's important for us to understand about that in order for us to understand kind of what comes next in the book? Right. Well, one of the things that most interests me in terms of thinking a history of big data is to move, is to attempt to ask about not just, again, um, a built technology, a server farm or um, your, your fiber optic cable, 
But um, to actually ask about the forms of knowing and the sort of belief structure that has to anticipate these incredible efforts that we now have to, to gather all this data. So from smart cities to the massive server farms that we're building to entire massive uh, logistical systems and incredible amounts of instrumentation around analytics to derivatives and finance. We obviously are deeply, deeply invested in um, a certain epistemology, right, of, of this, whatever we want to call it, big data. And I'm like, what what allows people to do that, right? And part of that is tracing a sort of real transformation within the histories of both science and art. And really key to me is that aesthetic element. You know, so one of the things that so fascinates me in studying the era that I study is that so little is actually built. You know, there, there aren't any, um, there, there aren't ubiquitous computing everywhere and people's bandwidth is very low. Their capacity to actually automate many of the machines and ideas that they're envisioning doesn't exist. But in many ways, there seems to be something happening about what people think constitutes truth and evidence that is very widespread. And a big element of it is actually this sort of new aesthetics. So there's that's emerging around information overload and training people to actually be prepared in, in a most systematic way to analyzing a lot of data. And so communicative objectivity for me, and, and by now I would move it to like an algorithmic objectivity, I guess, is a kind of shift um, from a previous model of mechanical objectivity or even ideas of, um, uh, of uh, authority, of kind of scientific authority, to a real emphasis on being able to post-collection analyze data and be able to find patterns in it. Um, and what's interesting about this is that there's a kind of deferral, and that's not to say that collecting data isn't important. And many people have said, you know, there's no such thing as as, as big data. There's no such thing as data. You know, um, all of it's kind of an oxymoron. But what's interesting is that nobody cares about that problem. So it's not it really exists, but that the world shifts from being one that is that needs to be documented and discovered, a, a real obsession with how do you capture data to a world that's assumed always already recorded, even though, of course, it's not. But you see this really emerging very, very strongly in a kind of emerging sort of pedagogy, especially in engineering schools and, and, and uh, business schools, where basically people are consistently and regularly being trained how to like read faster, how to scan, how to, you know, dump images. You see it in um, a lot of design practice where suddenly people are really, you're kind of leaving this sort of nice cleanliness, modernist idea of sort of the Bauhaus, like less is more to um, almost something that anticipates Venturi in the 70s, you know, less is a bore. Uh, so you're just seeing people really develop a lot of multi-channel, multi-image, uh, multi-sensory experiences that are almost intended, that are actually specifically and arguably intended to overwhelm spectators uh, and, and, and force them to kind of choose patterns you know, and find uh, 
rhythms, if you will, inside this information and not be interested in any one particular image or any or or interested in any sort of one particular fact that, you know, there's this kind of shift um, throughout a whole range of fields to sort of really thinking about method, process, um, analytics over kind of making sure that your facts are exactly correct and that you have every little detail right or, you know, so that's sort of a major transformation that for me is underpins the kind of recombinant uh, cultural aesthetic we have today where people are constantly grabbing and recombining, constantly looking for glitches, constantly, you know, the whole rise of management and organizational management as a field. I mean, these are all kind of symptoms of this idea that we live in a world that's full of information. And the real issue now is managing it, organizing it, finding the patterns and the relationships in it. And we don't really actually care about any, you know, one particular artifact or data or fact or even, um, and, and we don't talk about it, you know, even though obviously it's not that the world is recorded or that any sensor definitely works, but, you know, we seem to believe that, that they will. Thank you. Now, you mentioned um, kind of briefly the, uh, in, in I think one of your examples, the idea of smart cities. And in fact, this mm-hmm. is um, both how we kind of come into the book and also in a way how we leave the book as well, um, at least um, close to the end. And this is a smart city called Songdo. Now, this is a city that, as you described to us here, is about an hour's drive southwest from Seoul. It's the largest private real estate development on Earth. And well, when I wrote the book, I should, I should, <laughs> or was at the point of, you don't know, you, you work on China, you know that they're, they're pretty I good at putting it. up big, uh, big real estate developments every I year. I get it. So, so we'll see, at, at some point in time, not too long ago, it was um, the largest private real estate development on earth and it's marketed as a smart city. So because this is such a, a fascinating um, example can you, for listeners, kind of introduce this idea of the um, the reality of Songdo and talk a little bit about what's important for us to understand um, about Songdo and your treatment of it, for us to understand the um, what, how you're using it to argue in this part of the book? Yeah, well, just to kind of um, back up, I think in some sense for listeners to understand that what this book is about, I think Songdo encapsulates it. The book asks just like basic questions. So I've been doing ethnography. I combine that with history on these, the emerging discourse, which is now very popular, obviously in architecture, design, business about of smartness. And one of the first things I ask myself is how is it that we think this is smart? So you go to Songdo and it's a really banal, boring kind of bedroom community looking thing. A lot of uh, kind of, cookie cutter, large luxury condos um, with this kind of fluffy central park that's full of like, little <laughs> fluffy rabbits and like just like insane thing. They call it central park. It's like this, it's like this pastiche of all these 20th century cities just like jammed together in the kind of worst nightmare of modernist <laughs> boredom and like, you know, homogeneity. And so the first thing and and all of this is really cool because it's got these huge conduits lying under the ground. They're like three meters wide they're like so big because you could put so many fo- and fiber optic cables are pretty little by the way so you can just pack this stuff in right um and so one of the first things that 
you ask yourself as a historian, as a historian of my stripe, at least, is like, so what, why do we want, like, what, what, what kind of world thinks this is smart? Um, why, you know, what, where does this idea come from? And, 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 and how, what makes it, you know, how is it possible? I mean, what work does this smartness do? And then you talk to all the marketing and you talk to the engineers and you get these remarkable business models about like the way, you know, that, that you're not going to pay taxes in Songdo because you're just going to give off your data and that data is going to get collated with data from people all over the world and it's going to be sold off and and that's how we're going to monetize this space. And uh, so you get really curious. I don't know. I get really curious about these things. And so essentially what really interested me about Songdo is that it's not only the symptom of this amazing belief we currently have in, in big data, but it really embodies the fact that, you know, the kind of changes that had to happen and how we think about what the human is, but also, of course, um, what environment is and what a population is and what a technology is that would even make this possible. And the things that really stuck out was, of course, that it's called smart. And so the first thing you ask yourself is what kind of smartness is that? Which leads, this is why the book is titled A History of Vision and Reason, because for me, I'm interested in how did we come to see the environment as totally interactive and that this response we call these smart cities often also responsive environments, ubiquitous environments. And so one of the questions, so how did the environment become responsive? Um, smartness come to equal a bunch of networks, stupid things, doing, you know, just basically saying yes or no to each other um, and therefore creating these massive structures. And uh, what forms of perception and attention and actually embodied uh, experience, you know, phenomenal experiences, uh, are, are like, how do we have to recondition our bodies and ourselves to actually operate in these environments? What does it mean to see or to feel or to hear, um, in an environment like that? And so I thought that it really prompted, it just kind of demonstrates the world as interface that exists in these cities kind of just opens up a whole wonderful set of questions about, wow, so how did we, we have to rethink smartness and how did we have to think responsiveness or interactivity or the human sensorium to even, you know, exist or imagine these sort of constructions into being. And therefore, then I wanted to start tracking out this kind of history of the responsive environment or interactivity. And increasingly, and because, and to link it to this current obsession with big data, because the two are inseparable when you think about this sort of construction, because the very interactions you have with the environment are the source of the data that's going to monetize this environment. And this seems like such a curious phenomenon. I don't know. Maybe to me. Not, not everyone loves walking about big, bad uh, real estate projects, but I do. Um, <laughs> fortuitously located in East Asia, uh, you know, um, but, you know, I think for anyone really thinking for three seconds about the incredible discourse of smartness going on right now, uh, you know, the whole thing just sounds bizarre, mm -hmm. you know, or at least to me it does. So you trace this um, and, and we kind of get to interactivity and I'll, I'll jump right there in a moment by tracing, um, uh, first, or by first sort of bringing us into the work of Norbert Wiener and his colleagues, especially the colleagues working in neuroscience and cognitive science at MIT. So I won't ask you to talk too much about this um, strictly um, in the interests of time, but just to kind of situate us for listeners, 
can you take us into his work on um, on and with diagrams, his work on the discourse of diagrams, as it informs and helps us understand debates around time, storage, memory, and in particular, the relationship between perception, memory, and storage. Mm-hmm. Now, this is important because this um, chapter is really, at least on some level, interested in ideas of the archive. So this work on um, sort of conceptualizing the relationship between perception, memory, and storage, and understanding how and why vision becomes a site for working on this is really important to understanding um, this stage of the story, um, but especially uh, with respect to ideas of the archive. So maybe would you talk a little bit about that, the sort of how um, in this work, in this chapter, are perception, memory, and storage intimately related here? And why is vision um, and uh, sort of a, a workable site to think this through? Right. Well, coming back to just like examples everyone may know, um, and hopefully then they'll read the book and, and be further intrigued. Mm-hmm. You know, one um, is immediately struck in our contemporary age at the number, right, of, of interactive screens that we're constantly responding to. Um, and then the fact that along with this very responsive and immediate and fast environments that we're building, we're building an incredible infrastructure right now of massive data centers. I mean, they're sucking up like half the energy in the world. Like by now it's the same amount of energy as the airplane industry and soon who knows what, but essentially, so there seems to be something happening between the demand for hyperspeed and this kind of fantasy of infinite storage. And that that actually conditions um, our modes of attention and distraction you know, because we're constantly feeding into these systems. And so the, the question started basically, and this was an earlier, you know, this is one of the earliest parts of this book and um, really started about this relationship. So what is the relationship between the interface and the storage systems that it rests upon uh, in, in, in computing um, and in digital media? And then increasingly it became clear that storage is not necessarily archiving and 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 how do we think about this within a, a history of the relationships of media in general like from photography through cinema there's always been this question right of storing and time and and memory right as it's being recorded stored evacuated in the the forms of mechanical reproduction that are, that came up throughout the 19th and 20th century so one of the the first questions right if you're trying to say well i think something different is happening today uh, in terms of the media system, I have to establish its difference from some other period in history, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so essentially, I took up these traditional questions really around film and photography uh, and asked about their application in in computing and also to ask a different question than most people ask. So his most people are like, here's how computing impacts our idea of time. Our networks are really fast. We're constantly, everything's hyperspeed, et cetera. But one of my questions was sort of, so what does time look like within the machine, within the machines that people were envisioning? What, what kind of time was it? And considering that they weren't even thinking just about in machines like a computer, I mean, they were but they were also thinking about neural nets. They're also thinking about minds. They're kind of thinking about a variety of of forms that computing can inhabit. You no, know, what does time look like from within cybernetics? And so, 
that opened up into this 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 discussion basically of attempting to understand the ways that cybernetics was negotiating issues of recording, storing, and managing information was closely affiliated to how cybernetics was also rethinking perception and cognition, uh, the mind and also the perceptual field. And in fact, vision uh, was something I came to because originally I came out of film and media studies and, and I was mostly trained around visual culture. But to be honest, the book largely argues that vision is over mm-hmm. in some sense. I mean, this book very heavily argues against a kind of idea that, I mean, machines don't, and I'll stand behind it, um, don't really care about which sense <laughs> they're negotiating. Um, and so for me, in some sense, vision was a conduit to then talking about the way cyberneticians, and I'm not saying that's true. I'm not making a stance here. Like I really believe the senses are indifferentiable or anything like that. I'm just saying <laughs> from an engineering perspective, um, and very often from the perspective of these people who often weren't even working on human bodies. I mean, it's really important to, to recognize the inhuman or non-human feature of computing. Uh, all senses in some sense were treated as processes and, and things that could be extractable and, and re-simulated. And so, you know, increasingly I started with vision and just seeing how people were treating vision, but it ultimately became a question about how people were thinking about perception and cognition as a channel entirely. And increasingly I was also interested in the fact that perception what it meant to sense the world and what it meant to analyze it were becoming increasingly compressed into like one process so that you're kind of seeing an extension, if you will, of cognition into, into the environment. Um, of course, now we actually believe that we, we talk that way. We say there's, it's a smart city, like the environment itself is already capable, right. Of some capacities and cognitive ability. So, um, I found that, that very interesting and that opening chapter kind of opens up a sort of way to map out how I plan to even try to historicize something so complex as smartness. Mm-hmm. So, as, I don't know. Oh, yeah, thank you. So as we move into, um, from chapter one to chapter two, we move into, um, really, I think, a uh, a quite wonderful exploration of this idea of process and the ways in which, um, both vision and cognition become reconsidered in terms of process as process, and then process in turn becomes, as you put it here, a material and archivable object. I'll say that again for listeners because I think that's a really profound point. Process becomes a material and archivable object. Now, this chapter um, traces as a way to sort of get us to that point the ways that cybernetic concepts, and so, you know, based on the foundation that we've already developed in the first chapter, really transformed aesthetic practice, as you put it here, urban planning, engineering, business, and design education. And so you take us into a number of case studies that really embody this and and through which um, and in which this argument is made. So one of those case studies is um, the sort of the work of designer and artist Georgi Kepish, right? Yeah. So he he develops a new theory of visual perception. And there's a lot of really wonderful stuff about his work in this chapter. But what but because we only have an hour to talk, right? What I want to ask you to talk a little bit about um, is perhaps for historians of science, um, someone whose work is less 
familiar um, to this field of history of science, but who worked at least in part under Kepesh and whose work is really central for this chapter, and that is urban planner Kevin Lynch. Um, so can you maybe introduce us a little bit to the importance of Kevin Lynch in this chapter? What is he doing and how is what he's doing so central to the argument that you're making here? Well, as I said, one of the key features of this book is an effort to both understand and situate this kind of history of smartness and big data and the interactive environments we live in, as well as to ask about alternative visions of what the world might look like if we embraced communication and cybernetic and, uh, you know, the potentials that I also believe lie latent in these forms of thinking that emerged in the late 20th century. I don't think it's all bad and reductive. So my interest in Kevin Lynch and in Kepish actually is as almost um, uh, alternative voices to Charles and Ray Eames and more like state sanctions um, designers in terms of being the way that they attempted, they both were part of this new information society. They rethought uh, both how you train engineers, art- artists, designers, and planners um, to think about the world as a matter of communicating entities. So Kevin Lynch's real innovation working under Kepish, but also talking to people like J.C.R. Licklitter was to uh, introduce the idea of environmental psychology and to rethink urban space, not as uh, a, as a particular form. I don't, for people who don't know much about urban planning. Um, and I should mention that I was, uh, I was trained in, in public health with a focus on urban planning. We tend to like, Forms. So we'll have like the concentric circle city. We'll have like the garden city. We'll have particular types. We like to run around the world and identify like how Hong Kong looks exactly like um, New York or something. You know, like what are the kind of urban formations? In, and we have different ways of organizing these formations. But we like to look for these similar looking things around the planet. Um And Kevin Lynch was amongst the first that said, you know, instead of looking for this, like, essential form or identity of a city, we need to be thinking of the city as as an organism that's emerging out of the interactions between people. And this came under Kepish's tutelage, which was also very much about looking for patterns, trying to find the relationships between um, objects, between science and art, between... um, uh, different design elements rather than thinking about each element discreetly. And so Kevin Lynch really introduced this idea that we have to see these cities as dynamic, as constantly changing, as not a kind of static form, but rather kind of emerging through the interactions between people um, and creating this sort of, if you will, um, scalable psychology, a psychology that can move way out of just individuals onto um, you know, the social and even global scale. So this kind of becomes psychology is, if you will, almost like a, a scalar optic or a channel. Um, and I think that that really heavily informs us today, both in terms of the way we think about some responsive environments and how cities should be or environments should be responding to their users and are constricted through their utilization. But also, of course, for him, he created certain also possibilities for planning because instead of always having this big mega structural plan where you just like, you know, destroy half the city and, and 
plop down your business district or whatever, or big these massive highways, you can actually work much more locally uh, to affect, you know, bigger changes. You kind of can continue to, you can both impact the city by attempting to impact people's environments and their relationships to each other while simultaneously not doing it in a kind of overly coercive or massive way. And also at a moment when people weren't going to invest in urban planning in the United States, he did provide ways from community gardens to kind of um, more localized interactions to allow communities to attempt to act even though we wouldn't necessarily have the kind of capital and structural support to change everything. So I think in many ways he embodies this particular idea, but he also demonstrates how ideas coming out of these other fields so heavily then impacted, impact and continue to impact engineering and design decisions even today in terms of how we're thinking about urban form and maybe even the future of, of, of human habitation on earth. So I don't know if that kind of clarifies. Yeah, I know. That's great. And I think it also, um, just to kind of extend that, uh, one of the ways that this becomes really important is that it helps us understand the move here from um, perception understood in the way that we saw it in chapter one to perception as a form of interactivity. Um, So you you really uh, are bringing out the importance in this chapter of the importance of the notion of and the kind of work done by the notion of the interface So this is a chapter that really emphasizes the importance of interactivity and process and interface. Now, sorry, go on. Oh, no. Oh, I mean, I think that's a key feature and and maybe I guess a discussion. I realize what I did, but there is this key feature, I think, of moving from thinking about the senses and their discussion to these ideas of interactivity and environment. And that's kind of a trope and and theme throughout the book. Mm Mm-hmm. That's right. Thank you. So as we we kind of have um, a bit of an encounter with, or more than a bit of an encounter with these themes in terms of urban planning, of design, and there's this wonderful account, or at least for me, because I love anything having to do with a history of like syllabi and classrooms. And <laughs> okay. There's this really wonderful account um, in this chapter that I'll just mark for listeners of this class run by Charles Eames and uh, George Nelson, in which they were experimenting with how much information could be given to a class. And you talk about this like of archive of slides from this class where they're just bombarding the students with images. And it's a, it becomes a kind of experiment in choice um, in sort of process and pattern formation for the students. So I think it's just a really wonderful moment for anyone interested in the history of education as well. And we move from here to a chapter that um, looks at a different set of cases and set of localities um, in which to explore these phenomena. And this is a chapter that focuses on cognition. So here, as you um, take us into this chapter, chapter three, Humanists and social sciences are using, again, cybernetic paradigms, and we talked about that a little bit earlier on, to rethink techniques of measurement, of assessment, and of calculation. And this chapter is really tracing the way this is playing out in studies and understandings of cognition and of the mind. Um, You talk here about the emergence of something we might consider the algorithmic mind. Now, one of the really fascinating moments of this chapter is your discussion of neural nets and nervous networks in terms of psychosis. 
So you bring us here into a discussion of the ways that psychosis and, and discourses of psychosis generate new types of knowledge and new methods. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. What's happening here in terms of cognition and psychosis, and what's important for us to understand about that? Well, thanks. Uh, well, one, I mean, for me, again, coming into uh, the contemporary a lot of this is sponsored by the fact that I was really curious about the fact that the DSM-5 that was recently issued had um, had abandoned uh, the category of paranoid uh, schizophrenia. And that basically, so you couldn't be paranoid, I guess, anymore. Or we're so paranoid that that's just become normal. And so one of the things, well, and that's significant, right? Because we, we, a big part of this book is also about what, Foucault likes to call securitization, and obviously we are living in a kind of post-9-11 uh, terror security, whether environmental or economic or financial, uh, you know, we're kind of living under a very preemptive uh, and very sort of, I don't know if we want to call it paranoid, but, um, you know, these are the kind of conditions right now that I think preoccupy a lot of people, I think, studying uh, histories of anything, uh, but particularly of science and of computing. And um, it became quite incumbent to me to kind of take up those categories quite significantly, but also to demarcate where our contemporary conditions shift again from earlier 19th and earlier 20th century ideas of what constitutes uh, reason or rationality. And in this, this chapter really kind of accompanies a the book was already in production when the recent book by Lorraine Dastin and her co- and colleagues came out on how reason almost lost its mind. But I wanted to say, no, reason did lose its mind. And um, I also am really interested in the more um, dynamic elements of that loss. And kind of, for me, the interesting thing it began to emerge, and I didn't make up the word, even though there's a lot of theory around psychosis and paranoia. For me, it was really interesting is that's how people were talking about it. That all this logic and all this rationality, it wasn't, and it wasn't like people critiquing the government. It was, you know, people like Warren McCullough, people like John von Neumann is actually people were who were actually producing and conceiving. It was people like Herbert Simon were actually invoking these terms of kind of partial perspective, psychosis, a kind of impossibility in any forms of kind of objectivity as the actual legitimation of their practices. It was actually the reason that we needed to build these models and create these, fin- these kind of um, mathematical or financial technologies. It was actually a new reformulation of what constitutes an agent like you see a real movement here from agency and subjectivity to the agent as a as a new kind of entity that emerges and that for me was really important to track because again this book tracks the relationship between how we reconfigure the mind but also obviously this new emergent idea of the agent uh and the agent as being very closely and intimately linked to what we contemporarily understand as agents, whether, you know, in automating your um, animation in a, in a, in a movie or in, um, you know, running all these kind of simulations for meteorology. I mean, we all use, we use this idea of these kind of um, very logical algorithmic entities that are making decisions and and creating the world without necessarily having full information or 
um, any sort of necessarily mode that we might have called an older form of consciousness. So I was really interested in, in how that agent came into being. And the psychosis thing is particularly critical because uh, it seems to be the totally ignored element of all this Cold War rationality. It's not just that, like... You know, people who critiqued it are calling it psychotic, but that actually it's it's the term invoked by the people who are um, producing a lot of these uh, strategic technologies. And it also is a term that opens to a really long history, a really important history in psychoanalysis and in psychology of what, you know, constitutes a normal, reasonable human being. Um, as well as what constitutes pathology. And so I'm really interested in the changing attitudes to what would constitute um, a, a normal or a reasonable uh, acting agent. I know if that answers your Ab- question. No, absolutely. And, and I think one of the really interesting moments or series of moments in this chapter is when you're bringing us into um, experiments, actually, that mm-hmm. are... Uh, that are conducted on, for example, porpoises. Oh, yes, um, the poor porpoise. <laughs> right? And, and so there's this sort of um, exploration of the ways that a subject deals with incommensurable messages and this situation that a porpoise is put in where, um, you know, long story short, and listeners should definitely read this part of the book um, because there's a, a long explanation of this in, in much more detail, but basically this experiment of the behavior of this porpoise put into circumstances that are sending incommensurable messages um, to this subject, to this individual, allow a discussion and an understanding of um, the sort of the ways that decisions get made, of the relationship between torture and creativity, um, and just really, really, really interesting kinds of stuff going on here. Now, by the end of the chapter, we have a sense that data visualization here becomes a technique of control. And it's a technique to control this world of unknowns, of chance, of unreasonable behavior. And this brings us into a claim here, or an idea at least, unproposed here in this chapter, that visuality in the social sciences may be related to and may be a key for understanding democracy and freedom. Yeah, I mean... So that chapter really brings does a lot of work, and it's something that's also the seat of some of my future projects on on things like the agent based society. Um, yeah, one of the things, and again, it's most materially exemplified today by the kind of infrastructures of our contemporary world with these responsive environments, these massive data centers, and today, like, who doesn't love data visualization? It's a virtue. Um, and and everything has got to be, you know, everything has an info viz, like you check the New York Times, and there's some, like, beautiful little graphic operating. You know, and so one wonders about, and obviously in previous moments in history, people were very happy to look at numbers or happy to not look at anything at all. So, you know, one is really curious about this kind of recent um, obsession with data visualization. And one of my arguments is that as as reason becomes rationality, to, to use uh, Lorraine Daston's kind of framing of it, uh, and as people, but at the same time as people begin to understand their kind of partial algorithmic perspectives, their 
the, and control becomes a very difficult problem. I think one of the things that we tend to have a problem with in, in the history of science is that we're really, really reductive about how we understand control and particularly control and computing. Um, control is a really messy thing. Computers are psychotic. They don't know what is, you know, a fresh input and what's a recycled one. They don't know their program, you know, they don't know what's coming from, you know, the data, their storage or what's coming from the, you know, from the program. Uh, they have to be told all these things. And um, so they have a lot of problems organizing time in the order of commands, you know, and uh, and this is a big engineering problem and a big software problem. But control, of course, is also about potential. It's not just about knowing the future. It's about um, the possible actions you could take in the future. So control is a really complicated term. And increasingly, as people recognize that control is becoming less about um, statistical and clear knowledge of an endpoint and more about probabilities that you can't clearly ascertain, uh, they kind of are compensating for this sudden decentering, if you will, or even this lack of belief in a kind of fully objective uh, liberal subject, there's a compensatory turn towards being like, well, we don't know what the world is about. We can't fully grasp it, but, you know, we can visualize it. And the visualization is going to allow us to act even if we don't see it. So, for example, how many times do you see like stupid diagrams of the Internet? And they all look the same. And you're like, what the hell am I looking at? And, uh, and no, there's a million times, like uh, one of the most amazing things, those control centers that you see in, in uh, Rio or in Songdo or any of these things. I'm sure everyone's seen these massive uh, banks of screens. You know, they, no one can actually act on that data. No one can see it, like basically. And it's all being algorithmically monitored through a computer that's going to, you know, tell you whether you see something. There's too much information. And yet we love those displays. So like what's going on? It like gives us some sense of, of certitude. It also allows us to engage with, to interact with the system. So we're looking at things that we actually can't actually represent in any formal way. We continue to create these visualizations that allow us to actually act even if we, we know we don't have this full perspective. So there's something really key happening there that I, I, I attempt to unpack in far more complexity than what I'm explaining about this turn to visualization as a kind of virtue, but also this turn to feedback. So one of the interesting things that really interests me is the way that um, within like 10 years of the war, you know, feedback, which of course was always important for cybernetics, but also always kind of created all sorts of problems around um, noise becomes the most valuable thing. And you can think about this even acoustically, like how you have one, you know, Jimi Hendrix gets popular in the sixties everyone engaging with their system or feedback becomes this like aestheticized thing that's beautiful and important. And also in terms of democracy, the idea of democratic being democratic societies being incredibly responsive to their, to their, to their, um, to their citizens, right? Immediately. I mean, today that's a given, right? The government has to know what I think and respond. They have to have interfaces for this. That kind of amazing transformation of feedback from being a kind of engineering problem that's sort of potentially clogging up the chap, chap, uh, that, um, the channel to being just like a virtue and a necessity, something we have to increase, amplify. Uh, you know, I think that's really 
very, very clear and very, very critical in trying to understand even how we're understanding politics and democracy in our present because all these discourses of transparency, responsiveness, optimization, the kind of language you hear constantly discussed um, is, I think, kind of very much grounded in this moment where there's sort of a transformation in how we understand our agency as 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 human beings and um, and therefore also our reason and uh, its relationship to this sort of media infrastructure and these ideas of communication control. And I think that really nicely brings us into what will be unfortunately a very brief encounter with chapter four but this is a chapter that's all about governing right this is Mm -hmm. um a chapter that considers the relationship and the linkage between politics and aesthetics through what you call the valorization of beautiful data and this chapter makes a case for a reformulation i think what you call it a radical reformulation of the tactics for governing bodies and territories and networks through measurement and attention. Now, there's a whole lot of really interesting things going on here from experiments on frog eyes, which are just, I mean, worth uh, the price of admission uh, by themselves. It's just a super fascinating part of the chapter to um, work on uh, the work of neuroscientists, psychologists. We have here again uh, designers Nelson and Charles and Ray Eames um, and their exhibition of a cavern filled with screens um, that are showing images and you sort of link this to Cold War politics. There is a lot going on here. Now, mm-hmm. at its basis is an argument about a fundamental refiguring of how cognition is understood and how that is related to transformations in thinking governmentality. So mm-hmm. this might be a good place for us to kind of, um, you know, to, to touch on this as we leave the book. Can you talk about this part of the book in terms of transformations of cognition and its relationship to ideas of governmentality? Yeah, well, the the final chapter of the book kind of acts, again, in keeping with my desire for density and probability for thinking kind of nonlinear histories. um, The book kind of intensifies, and in some sense, the final chapter brings together both the earlier, all the three previous chapters, the chapter that's looking at the question of what constitutes truth in archiving and storage, the chapters that are negotiating the transformation in how we treat perception or, or, or in this case, vision and visuality, and the chapter that rethinks um, cognition and, of course, agency and the agent, uh, all together in one chapter where basically you want to link together these transformations happening out of the history of science and the history of technologies um, with transformations in aesthetics and how we sense and feel and organize our world. And all of this comes together, of course, around a particularly famous, and I, and I do want to mention, I'm, I'm hardly the only person to mention this 1959 exhibit. It's a pretty well-known thing. But I thought it provided a very interesting place to look because, one, uh, the Eames were very closely engaged in cybernetics and the communication sciences. And second, um, it's a particularly pivotal moment in global history. This particular installation sits at a kind of moment of potential detente in the in the cold war and a moment um of the civil rights movements sort of gaining momentum and so a moment where you're really seeing race and population and territory and nation all being negotiated through um these media tactics and one of the things that's a big theme in the book of course is 
the somewhat surprising feature that we seem it's automatic today um, to respond to urban problems or environmental problems by, you know, increasing the responsiveness of our environment. But this seems kind of, for me, what's interesting is how did everyone from urban planning to sociologists, human sciences move from, you know, engaging the society in terms of, uh, in terms of structures of poverty, class, this sort of discourse to moving towards, you know, I think the way we'll address global geopolitics is through the modulation of attention. I mean, that this seems on one hand, yes, there's a history of propaganda. And on the other hand, it seems sort of counterintuitive that, um, this is the sort of way that people would design or respond to particular political this like situation. Um, so that particular example really offers a way that the Eames took ideas and, and these reformulated concepts of perception and cognition, kind of put them into the architecture of this media system. And the, the way that architecture actually played out in terms of um, negotiating older questions of what constitutes um, power, including, um, and this is a critical moment, right, in American empire, as well as in rethinking race and population. So I was really interested in the way that these new ideas about agency, agents, and, um, and interactivity kind of allowed a new politics to happen around uh, the place of, of racial difference and the way that racial difference actually gets uh, incorporated or assimilated into this network uh, in complex ways that also created create and continue to create certain problems around being able to acknowledge civil rights or even to be able to um, recognize the suffering or pain of people of others. So there's a real violence in this system as well as, of course, as I point to in the discussion after, um, I'm really focused also on this, the, the cinema, the person who did this editing, which is John Whitney senior, who invents a kind of, who was one of the pioneers in computer, um, in, in animation, in digital animation. Uh, and basically I'm really interested also in the different possibilities of these practices to also create new forms of encounter experience between people. So it's kind of a pivotal place that brings it all. And then asks us like, so why do we care? You know, isn't it nice that, that, that computers or whatever communication sciences have impacted society, but to what effect? Um, and so there's, I think a, deeply political and ethical component. And particularly here, I'm really interested in the effect this has on uh, race, nation, and um, and dif- and encountering uh, difference or being able to witness or see essentially the pain of others under conditions where we're so attuned to our media system that we're so reactive at every moment. Um, how do we see anything really it comes down? It becomes a question. Mm-hmm. And that's actually, um, as we kind of come to our close, that's one of, again, many really striking things and I think really important things about the book is that throughout the book, I think in each one of the chapters, there is an explicit attention to the stakes of the discussion. So I think, you know, several times there's some version of what are the stakes of this? You know, let's understand the stakes of this. And I think that's a really, really important um, aspect of the book. This isn't just about let's look at the history. This is also about let's think about the consequences and how we move forward from here. 
Well, thank you for that. Um, so I guess I can end here, but, you know, I really believe in writing history, not just for the present, but for the future, which is to say my interest is in denaturalizing the present, but not not only to stay now, but to kind of attempt to really open up how we imagine we want to live in the future. And so it was really critical to me in doing this because there's so much work in general on cybernetics um, and on design and architecture to really politicize it, but also put it in contact with new discourses that we don't, you know, we're really used to talking about computers in relation to the military, but, you know, um, in terms of really thinking contemporary issues of terror, race, uh, transformations and what constitutes governmentality, I think there's been a lot less. And so uh, this has been a real effort to kind of put the histories and genealogies of media in conversation with um, histories of race, politics, and nation uh, and empire, and also to really attempt to do that, not only to say, like, look how bad our contemporary media system is, but also to open up the possibility that we do have alternative choices, we can produce different futures. So, Ori, we've come to the end of our, or at least the conclusion of our conversation. There's still a lot we haven't talked about, right? There's a whole oh my God. conclusion. There's an epilogue that looks, I think, really beautifully at the work of Noguchi um, and a couple of gardens that he designed. Um, there's a lot going on um, above and beyond what we've talked about. Is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd like to mention for listeners and perhaps especially for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to become readers? Um, you know, uh, I, th I think we've covered a whole lot. I mean, I think in many ways, um, I think I would like to emphasize just the experimental feature of this work, I guess. Um, it was, it was a really effort to create a multimedia history. And so the book also really engages very heavily with the materials that I studied. It has 108 images, um, mm -hmm. which is a lot. And, uh, and I, and I, paid a lot of attention to attempting to edit them so that they told a story as well, so that there are multiple ways to experience this history. And again, um, I, I hope that readers will really enjoy the fact that there's a whole lot of unintuitive uh, objects being brought together. I hope are unintuitive objects being brought together and that they really think about the fact, you know, what I think is special about this book, if I can say, you know, of course, this oh, yeah. is totally narcissistic. But, you know, I really hope readers really think about the book as a whole, like that it's really important that they're holding the neural nets and the frog's eyes next to the design um, objects. Because again, I think what makes this book particular is the close attention to the histories of science and epistemology in relationship to the histories of design and architecture and urban planning and uh, correlating those joint histories to um, histories of biopolitical uh, governance and race. So um, I'm hoping that people kind of see this as a kind of comprehensive package and, uh, and hopefully enjoy it. So now that the book is out and congratulations on Thanks. what I think is, it's hopefully obvious that I think it's an amazing book. What's next for you? What are you working on now? And what are you inspired by? Oh, I have like five projects. Um, <laughs> well, uh, I ha 
right now, um, one, I've, I've been asked to do a book from by Oxford, or hopefully will be asked to do in, in the proposal stage on cybernetic archives, which is kind of just looking at how both the how both the idea of time in that emanates from the different archives I've worked at, but also how the archive itself uh, prompts serious questions about both. Um, theorizing the archive in a digital age as well as kind of prompts new methods in historiography and method is a big part of my future work so part of this has really been like so how do we deal with information inundated world um how do we uh rethink historical practice for this and also how do we engage with um other practices and across disciplines and so i'm also working on a collaborative book called recreate um with people at Hexagram, actually, in Canada and Vancouver. Uh, and it's about research creation, and it's about asking about the relationship between different forms of making, uh, writing a book, but also maybe performance art, uh, design. Um, how, do, how, do, uh, how can we transform our modes of uh, both theorizing and practicing in ways that produce new forms of knowledge? So we're really interested in experimenting with different ways that research can happen through also the production and making of artistic and design um, products and how, you know, basically how we can kind of rethink the relationship, right, between the humanities, the social sciences, and um, the arts and design. So that's kind of a big goal and also a really interesting place for me is to think about the many different ways we can articulate our scholarship and also the different modes of doing scholarship uh, that are now increasingly available to us. And then I also am working on two other books. Um, one of them is on <laughs> calculative utopias, which is an apocalyptic hope, which is about a kind of the global infrastructure of um smart cities that is currently emerging. It's much more ethnographic and presentist, um, but I'm really interested in how high technology infrastructures are negotiating the future. Uh, so I'm looking at everything from like the Pioneer Data Center, which had WikiLeaks. Uh, it's a very fancy data center. It has chandeliers. So um, <laughs> this is like much more fun. Like this, the first book was heavy. The, I mean, but I want everyone to read it. But it's uh, it was much. This is more like uh, here are the most curious places on the planet where we're totally speculating on the end of the world and every disaster that can possibly happen and doing it in high style. So. Um, it's a collection of these things like Pioneer and, and Songdo's and Singapore's and, and, and neat places like this where uh, luxury meets disaster uh, in high technology environments. And I'm asking about the different types of future that we're envisioning and speculating upon right now. How do each of these infrastructures create different ideas of futurity? And I'm continuing from this book to work on the agent-based society. So I'm really interested in this figure of the agent and how it comes about and uh and the implications so mm -hmm. that's that's like a short summary of like everything but uh it is all linked because the minute you start thinking the whole world in terms of smartness like everything's connected so well that's best of luck that's amazing and i want to talk to you about all of those projects so let's consider this the first of many conversations um for the show to come thank you so much Arid. it's really been a pleasure and congratulations thank you carla You've been listening to new books in science, technology, and society. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time. 